0: Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined, I think, as always. Can I say this right now, Deirdre? As always, by Deirdre Bosa, she is the illustrious host of CNBC's Tech Check. Welcome.
1: Now I can never take a week off, so I will (laughs) always be here, Dan.
0: Listen, we appreciate you. Many of our listeners know I like to go on and on about things, but you like to actually push back and you're doing actual reporting rather than just like what I'm doing, hot takes all over the place on this stuff, but we got a lot of stuff to cover. And we actually had a great interview with Jeff Richards of GGV Capital with Ilir Sella. He is the founder and CEO of Slice. And it's not just what you think. This is not just a pizza delivery company. He is servicing 15,000 small business owners across America here. And he's got a great read on just what is going on in the economy, how he's disrupting some massive incumbents, why Jeff Richards, invested in slice a few years back he's on the board and what he saw in a very unique entrepreneur so stick around for that conversation all right d you and i got a lot to talk about because there is a topic i think since i've been following you on cnbc that you have been covering i would say passionately it's been this kind of cloud story as it related to not just amazon and aws and the powerhouse that they have there but really as Google, as Microsoft, even names like Oracle and IBM have been challenging here, and all of a sudden, this week, we have some concerns about Q1 and possibly for the balance of the year of the growth rates there. I want to dig in a little bit with you because this is something I know that you've been tracking in Q4. We saw meaningful deceleration in some of these numbers, specifically at Amazon. And We know that Amazon really services a lot of small and medium businesses. And We know that there's been a lot of cuts there in the back half of last year. So talk to me a little bit about it because here's an analyst, Brent Thrill, over at Jeffries, who's cutting numbers into the prints. I know that most of these guys are going to be reporting over the next couple of weeks. Just give me your thoughts on this a little bit, because this is not news to you. This is something that you've been tracking, but I actually think it's probably some of the most important data points that we might get out of Q1 earnings.
1: Absolutely, and let me just say why I like to track AWS so much and the hyperscalers as a whole, which is AWS, Microsoft, Azure, and Google Cloud, because there's been so many SaaS software cloud companies over over the last few years, sometimes you don't, or our audience doesn't necessarily know what PagerDuty does from a Twilio, from a data dog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at these big three that we call them hyperscalers, right? Because they're the biggest cloud players. You see what their numbers look like. That can give you a good broader idea of enterprise spending as a whole. So beyond the software and SaaS names, but any company basically in the world is moving to the cloud. So when their numbers decline, that tells you something about the economy. And that's why these numbers became especially important about a year ago, right? When we started to enter the softer economic backdrop. Amazon is an interesting one in particular because AWS is really the profit engine of this previously highly unprofitable company, right? Like Dan, you know this better than anyone. E-commerce is not a great business for Amazon. (laughs) It's reached a huge amount of people and huge scale. And we love Prime. We love our two day, one day deliveries, but it's cloud business is really the reason why it's able to operate this and go into new areas like advertising and streaming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Over the last year, I feel like the most important chart that I've looked at are these AWS numbers. And you see them tick lower as a whole over the last maybe 12, 18 months, fall off a cliff. And this is, to me, it signifies how much companies, doesn't matter what sector, banking, consumer durables, et cetera, et cetera, how much they're spending in terms of the cloud. So when Brent Thill especially comes out and he says, hold on a second, this is cause for concern. This is why Amazon is underperforming. He has been such a staunch bull for so long. It's like finally, or not finally, I think a lot of smart people have already seen this, Brent included. Brent is very smart and he comes on Tech Check all the time. But the focus now tells you that Amazon is in a different place. And we've known this than the other mega caps and it has been underperforming. And of course it's underperforming meta. I mean, it's. PE ratio is so much higher than any of the other megacaps also.
0: So to your point on some of the stuff it's interesting the stock market i think at least investors got the memo a while ago when you started reporting on the deceleration, right? And I think that this is a business that was growing 30% plus a year and it was getting really big, right? And so when you talk about what it does for Amazon, their ability to offer free same day shipping, free returns, all that sort of stuff. And we know that a lot of that stuff is changing in prime. It seems like we're getting new updates about that, that they're starting to charge for returns and they pushed out from same day to one day, now two day, they're back to that, right? And so when you have this engine of growth for them and you have just such slim margins on that retail business, and the stock is down almost 50% from its all-time highs in mid-2021, and it's only up about 22% from its recent lows, right? And so, those were multi-year lows, and interestingly enough, when it was trading near $80 at the end of last year, early this year, that was very near its March 2020 pandemic lows, and there weren't too many pandemic, or there weren't too many mega cap stocks that have done that. And when you think about the NASDAQ, at least the NASDAQ 100, that's up nearly 19% of the year, that relative performance to me stands out. And I just want to give two cents on what Brent is saying in his note this morning. And he's talking about the majority of Amazon's operating income is coming from AWS, right? So he's going to need to see a stabilization of this. And so he's projecting currently 12% lower than they were in February of 2022. That's AWS growth. It makes sense to you and me because we saw the pull forward during the pandemic right so you had work from home you had school from home you had everything from home here and a lot of businesses accelerated their plans to move to these hyperscalers and now you're seeing deceleration has a lot to do with just look at all the tens of thousands of job cuts we've seen at the large mega cap tech companies but then across all of these startups, these private companies that have been relying on these hyperscalers to actually grow over the last few years.
1: I would add one more thing, that it's not just the softer macroeconomic backdrop and companies as a whole spending potentially less in the cloud, because remember, it's consumption-based, so it's easy to turn on and turn off, and that's why these numbers matter so much. But it's competition, too. This is an Amazon-specific problem. I think there was a Morgan Stanley note from a few weeks ago that said that maybe five years from now or something, Microsoft Azure's cloud business is going to be bigger than that of Amazon's. So this isn't just the law of large numbers. Of course, Amazon's is the biggest right now. But Microsoft, which is so enterprise focused, they're winning new business, I think, faster and better than Amazon is. And that's really an existential question for the company as a whole because of the importance of AWS in the grand ecosystem.
0: you and I have been talking about it on the pod over the last few months or so. The deal that Microsoft did with OpenAI, right, for ChatGBT, and it really was about growing as your and obviously some of the other business lines but think about it when they initially invested a billion dollars part of that was like credits for their cloud right and then when they just invested 10 billion so they're kind of in the capper and there was an interesting article in the information a few days ago AI developers stymied by server shortage at AWS Microsoft and Google and so it's all of these companies whether they be large publicly traded companies or all these other recently funded companies that are looking to build these large language models and just build in and around also what open AI has created. And this could be an interesting push pull, right? When you see a lot of big incumbents, it's not just tech companies that are using these hyperscalers, right? It's across almost every industry. So it'll be interesting to see what this kind of AI race, does it pick up some of the slack? But right now, what this article from the information is suggesting is that they're really capacity constrained right now too.
1: And points to the company that everyone loves to talk about right now, which is NVIDIA, right? NVIDIA is really the major supplier of the chips that these hyperscalers need to carry out this huge amount of computing power. But back to your point, when you look at what Amazon has been investing in also during boom times, it was interesting, streaming devices, consumer-facing stuff. Microsoft has been investing in open AI and putting generative AI into office tools. So, they've been positioning themselves and they've been focused on the enterprise with this AI drive versus an Amazon.
0: So let me ask you this. This is just, this is playing a little fast money, right? So you're going to take your tech check hat off and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to get in your fast money seat here. It, it's funny since last, I want to say summer, right? we had, Meta, every time they reported gapping down, cutting numbers, right, like huge gaps. And we saw that from Netflix, and we saw it from a bunch of other SaaS names, some of the ones that you actually just mentioned, the data dogs, and cloud security guys, and this and that, whatever. And then it's sooner or later, they stopped gapping lower, right? They started working higher, and there's no shortage of stocks that after a month or two this year that we track closely, they were up 30, 40, 50%. You just mentioned NVIDIA, and Nvidia is up 85% on the year, so, think about this. So, I wonder as we get through Q1 here, okay, and we start thinking about, okay, what does the economy look like for the back half of this year? Are we going to have a recession at some point? Is some of the, just all of these hikes that we've seen nearly 500 basis points in Fed funds rate, is it finally going to work itself through the economy here? Are we going to have a recession? And I wonder, are there a couple big gaps lower after we've stem the tide. You know what I mean? A little bit. Are there some big problems lurking in some of these big tech names? You saw that headline yesterday from IDC about PC shipments at Apple down 40% year over year. Think about that. Now, granted, PCs were 7% of Apple's total sales in their December quarter. So it's not like a huge thing that moves the needle. But if you were to see, let's say, Macs or iPads or iPhones, that make up 65% of their revenues, right? Let's say they're down just, I don't know, high single digits, like a few percent more than what the street's expecting. Is there like some big problems in big tech coming this quarter?
1: That's such a tough question because you have to figure what does the market value? Do they value profitability? Gameta has found religion and efficiency and cost cutting. Do they value growth? Because a lot of these companies, and you mentioned Apple, supposed to be negative growth, revenue growth this year, right? Or do they value that fortress balance sheet, which we've talked about in the last few months, and that these big tech companies are seen as safest because they have humongous cash piles and good margins. And even if it's declining, you know, it's better than the rest of the tech sphere, and they're going to hold up better. So I... To answer your question, I don't know. <laughs> and when you get into, I guess what's happened recently too is the prospect of pausing interest rate hikes or potentially cuts has helped the whole tech as tech valuations. But does that last? I just don't know.
0: a little bit. You know, it's funny, Deirdre, though, it's basically, I think, moved more money into the mega cap names over the last call it month or so. And really since SVB, which we've talked a little bit for all the reasons that you just mentioned there. But to Apple, you just said it. it was like expected flat earnings and sales growth for fiscal 2023, and it's trading at 27 times, right? And so when you think about that, and here's a company that has bought, last quarter, they bought $25 billion worth of stock. That's what they returned to shareholders between dividends and buybacks. And you think about there was a time where they could borrow at nothing and they could buy their stock back and they were growing, even if they were growing mid to high single digits, what that did for their EPS growth. That's a really different environment right now. especially when if you're expecting a slower growth environment maybe some margin pressure maybe inflation starts to tick up and i just think it's really important like right now this company has 165 billion in cash and i know they generate a lot of cash each quarter but you know they have 111 billion in debt and so it'll be interesting to see if they can keep the pace up of the buybacks again i just bring it up because growth has slowed if it's worse than expected And we haven't even talked about what the situation in China could be for a company like Apple, especially given just the competitive nature that we are having right now on multiple fronts from a technology standpoint with China. I just don't know how Apple is going to be immune to any sorts of issues. We're going tit for tat with advanced chip sales and all this sort of stuff back and forth. Sooner or later, uh, this is going to actually have to hurt at least demand, consumer demand in China for Apple's products. In my opinion.
1: Yeah. Also, you have to see, I would maybe say that we've already seen this bifurcation in big tech. It's not all equal. We still call it a group. FANGM Plus, et cetera, et cetera. But going back to where we started this conversation, you're seeing that Amazon has this mix of not great earnings or revenue growth, squeeze margins, and it doesn't have that huge cash pile that Apple has, still has a big one, but it's also its valuation is so much higher than anything else because of its profitability. So that's a possibility. I do think that Apple and the consumption story in China. I don't know that we've seen the huge reopening play that people were expecting, but I think that one of the, we've talked about this before, one of the biggest issues on Tim Cook's mind is diversification. And he's looking at India, whether he's able to pull it off, how many years that's going to take is another matter, but he's on it. And he's the best supply chain manager in the world.
0: And I guess the question that I would have is that Tim Cook has spent 20 plus years developing that relationship and there's really fantastic relationships across his supply chain. And think about since he started doing that like 20 years ago, this was a company that was doing like single digit billion in revenue or whatever the hell they were doing. And now... They're doing hundreds of billions of dollars. It's like not an easy task to reorient your supply chains for the kind of products that they need and where all of the the components are coming from, and, and the manufacturing capability and the cost that they needed to, and all that sort of stuff. To me, it's interesting because if they do accelerate that, whether they go to Vietnam, whether they go to India, whether they go to Brazil, or they go to Mexico, and they've talked about bringing some manufacturing back here in the US, at some point, that's when the Chinese basically say, if you're taking hundreds of thousands of jobs from us, right? This there's going to be a repercussion as it relates to consumer demand. And when you think of Apple, at least in smartphones, they're not one or two or three in market share. There's local carriers there, and you know as well as I, they use the super apps there. You know what I mean? So to me, what might be really aspirational from a consumer product standpoint right now, or over the last few years, for an iPhone or something like that might not be the case if, I guess, our tit-for-tat, our little economic war gets a bit hotter with China over the next few years.
1: I actually disagree with that. I think that Apple is in such a unique position in China. It's only been gaining market share. Its popularity has only been increasing and it has this sort of really special place in China that I don't think any other Western company has. And you mentioned it. It's the employment there. It's what happened in Zhengzhou, iPhone City. Chinese can't stomach Apple not doing well, not having the right environment to operate in China. So I think they have more time. I think that Tim Cook is being smart. He's looking to diversify. And he knows that he's got leverage against the Chinese. And even when we've seen these past instances, bilateral tensions flare up, you see a Huawei, right, just get crushed by our controls in the US. Apple, they never did anything against Apple. I think Tesla is a different story. I don't think that they have the kind of capacity and scale that Apple has to continue to operate without, to not have a sense of urgency. Tim Cook may be urgent, but I think he knows he's benefiting the Chinese economy.
0: Listen, we're going to get to Tesla, trust me. But the one thing I would just say is that over the weekend, you see what's going on, right? Like the Chinese are doing drills as far as a blockade of Taiwan here. And you think of the precedent that was set with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I get it. They're not going to pull out of China. They're not. Going to, there's manufacturing, there's the retail operation, there's a whole host of other things going on there but it's a pretty nasty precedent that's set and if you think what happened with the global supply chain as it relates to energy because of the disruption of that invasion of ukraine by the russians and how much of natural gas crude is controlled or flows through there we're not even talking about grain and all this just think of the inflationary impact that had last year what it would do if there was really some hiccup with chips especially at a time where There is a glut, so maybe that's good, right? We heard from Samsung and we heard from Taiwan Semi what they're talking about as it relates to cutting some production. But to me, I just feel like that could look like a sideshow. What happened last year as it relates to energy, if we have this issue with chips.
1: I'm half Taiwanese, Dan. So that to me is a scarier thought than anything. Some kind of conflict coming to a head between the mainland and Taiwan. But I think what you mentioned is a really important part. Part of the one of the biggest reasons that investors love Apple is Tim Cook's control over the supply chain. Think about how much they rely on China. That is a big blind spot, right? They can't control if things escalate. What I was saying is, if they don't, and I don't believe they will, but who knows? Like you said, <laughs> this can be extremely. Unexpected, and look at what happened between Russia and Ukraine. Didn't Buffett as well say that part of the reason he sold out of his TSMC stake was because he was worried about those geopolitical yes. tensions? Yeah, and
0: that was pretty quick, too. Here's one name, and when we're talking about potential kind of tape bombs, this is Alphabet, and you and I had spoken about this a couple of times. It had a big run up, all Mega Cap Tech did in January. I think at some point it was up about 20%. And then once the kind of chat GPT rollout happened, the stock sold off really hard. I think it was down nearly 20%. And now it's just kind of run back again. I find this one really interesting because if you think of some of the headwinds that we know about advertising having nothing to do with chat GPT and what Bing is going to do, we know that's a way out, right? like as far as so i look at this one and i say to myself okay expected revenue growth in the mid to high teens this year with expected earnings growth at 21 percent. it trades 20 times it looks really cheap but of all like of all of the major names, especially relative to growth. But for some reason, like I'm most worried about this one because if there is some sort of deceleration, let's say away from cloud, but to their core business, I think investors might really extrapolate that this is one that you have to be worried about, especially if you're still in, all in, at least of what Microsoft's perceived leap that they've made with ChatGPT.
1: Do you think, Dan, is part of the reason... You think this because maybe there's a sense that Alphabet has become complacent. Is Sundar Pichai a wartime CEO? I think that's a question that's been asked so far this year. Is he tough enough? You've seen Satya Nadella over at Microsoft come out, be aggressive, go on the offensive. But Pichai, he's so measured and he's so smart, but a lot of investors think that Google should be cutting more, right? And there's so many places that they can't, but they haven't been on that kind of cost drive or efficiency drive that some of the other names have. And maybe they should be because they hired a lot during the pandemic. They have room to cut.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I think that it, investors have actually been rewarding the cuts, right? There's been very few cuts that you and I have been tracking by big tech companies that have not seen the stocks trade up afterwards. No Amazon. Doubt. Yeah, that's actually true there too. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. To Tesla, there's always a lot of news going on there. I think, interestingly enough, in the quarter end, the stock had run up. The excitement about deliveries and the deliveries in Q1 were disappointing. They were below, I think, street consensus, not by many, 7,000 on a 430,000 sort of number. But they also, since then, instituted their fourth price cut, I think, in so many months, right? If you think about it, Elon Musk was over in Shanghai. is talking about building a mega-pack gigafactory, which is not related to the cars. They're industrial energy packs. And again, I think some investors find some of that stuff less sexy, but as far as the industrial applications of that could be interesting, right? At a time where you might see greater competition. And we know that Tesla is losing market share largely because the competition is here. And that's not such a horrible thing if they are able to maintain their margins. But the other issue here is that margins were 25 and a half percent last year, which was nearly like 10 percent over most major OEMs. But like when you think about this year, they're expected to be 22 percent Morgan Stanley analysts out there saying they may have a hard time getting 20%. Talk to me a little bit what your perception is about Tesla with China, because Elon is supposedly going over there. They already made this announcement about this battery pack factory at a time where China demand and China manufacturing is super important for them a huge part of their growth is gonna come in China.
1: Like Apple, Tesla has been rewarded hugely for going into China. It's in a different position. We talked about how the iPhone is taking market share. You just said Tesla is losing market share and there's lots of room for many different players to grow, but it's going head to head with the Chinese players who are pretty good at what they do. It reminds me a little bit of, remember when Zuckerberg, when was it a long time ago? He went over and he went running by the Forbidden Palace in Tiananmen Square and he spoke Chinese. And no matter how much charm he was able to lob at the Chinese government officials, it was to no avail. And Elon Musk is doing a similar charm offensive right now because everyone dreams of going in Tesla. He's already been rewarded for doing so. But the next 10 years could look very different than the last 10 years. Does he have the kind of scale that Apple does? And does he have an iPhone city or a Tesla city? It looks like that's what he's trying to build, which is smart. But Will Beijing allow that to happen right now? And I don't know the answer to that, but it's high risk, high reward.
0: At this point, they got to do it, right? When you think about just the competition they already have in China, but you also think about the China, like their focus on moving their consumers toward EVs. It's a lot It's a lot more aggressive that we see here. And so it just does remain a huge opportunity there. One of the things that I find interesting to your point about Zuckerberg, he just got destroyed. Do you remember that? He like put a Facebook post out about him running in Tiananmen Square. And at the time, he thought he could maybe sweet talk the Communist Party about what their restrictions or their censorship rules might be for his platform to have some sort of voice over there. And when you think about it, going back 20 years to Yahoo and eBay. They've all been shut out. And so the point I think for Musk is that, yes, like Tesla is Tesla. It's a manufacturing. Melissa pushed back at me the other night on Fast Money about this. Like tons of U.S. multinational companies are doing manufacturing and they're looking to tap Chinese consumers, but there aren't too many of the CEOs of those companies that have 134 million followers on a platform that he owns himself, right? He bought 40, he paid $44 billion for Twitter that is not allowed in China, but he bought it in the name of free speech. And he's also tweeted and said things like free speech is like this existential threat for our civilization. So how can you take that stance here in the US, but then be totally mum about China, which is easily the most totalitarian state on the planet, if you think about it. And there's plenty of criticism about human rights and climate, and the list goes on and on. So to me, I think he can turn himself into a pretzel as much as he wants to build new gigafactories in China and really try to get Chinese consumers very interested in their products. But he also has this huge conflict of interest on the other side, which is Twitter.
1: But maybe the fact that he's making such a mess of Twitter is some comfort to Chinese officials. I can't imagine them seeing it as a threat because it's been all over the place and he's not allowing Chinese dissidents to go on it. He's just, he's all over the place. It's hard to see a strategy. It's confusing. And Maybe that's why they'll ignore it for now, but you're right. Dan, <laughs> with a platform like this, it's such high stakes and with a business in China, but maybe it just comes, it comes down to employment and how much Tesla is going to be able to add to Chinese GDP. I think that's all that Beijing cares about.
0: And you push back on if we are increasingly in a hot economic war that could turn to other things. I want to make one point about your comment about being half Taiwanese. And I don't mean to see, seem unsympathetic to like what the human cost might be for some sort of dust up with Taiwan. And I know this is something that people in Taiwan have lived with for over 50 years easily. You know what I mean? The threat of this sort of situation obviously, we look at a lot of this stuff through the lens, sadly, of the markets and the economy or whatever. And when you think about the potential disruption there, I find it really interesting. And I'll just say this, is that if we do have increasingly nationalistic stance towards the way we're doing business with them, we still have the tariffs. We're still, for all intents and purposes, in a trade war going back to 2017, 18, and things just continue to get dialed up. I think at some point, the Chinese, that there's, Two factories in Shanghai, what do they give a shit? They got 10 or 20 real EV players that they actually are subsidizing. You know what I mean? So like, to me, I think that Elon could just be a pawn in this whole thing. And again, I'm not a fan. I just find it to be the ultimate, like hypocritical sort of view, like some of the comments that he makes about free speech, but yet he cozies up to them in an effort to gain access to their markets.
1: Ultimate hypocrite. I cannot disagree with you there. Does he care? No, no.
0: so, you know. All right, so let me ask you this last thing before we get out of here. You know, Twitter as a platform, it's interesting. Most people that you and I come across that are not in media, that are not in finance, that are not in tech, that are not in entertainment, not in politics, not in sports, and that's a lot of people. It just seems to be like those are all the people that we talk to for the most part, right? So we're all on Twitter, and a lot of it for us has been branding, right? And it's been this second screen, and it's been a way to communicate with people who are interested in the work that you do, and to grow your network, and a whole host of things. I think you and I would both agree, and I think most of our friends would agree, that being on Twitter for the last 10 years, doing what we've been doing in finance, and tech, and media, has been a really good thing. I've met tons of great people, a lot of great friends, both personally and professionally. And we've been able to expand our reach and the content in which like we create and be able to iterate on it. I feel like that it's been crashing down. And I got to tell you, it really goes back to me to Jack Dorsey in his second tenure. Jack Dorsey was running this company into the ground. That's matter of fact, and it really presented the opportunity for someone like Elon to come in and do what he's done, but what Elon's done is much worse. And so I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts as someone who's used Twitter really well for a long time you're on TV all day long, you're inter- you're interacting with people who are big on it. Do you think it's something that you're going to be spending more or less time on over the course of, let's say, the next year or two?
1: Let me first say, I love, I have loved Twitter, just like you. I used it so early on in my career when I would go back to the office in the afternoons in the late afternoon in Singapore because people in the U.S. were just waking up. And that's honestly how I met a lot of the people, the journalists, the commentators, the executives, the professionals was on Twitter when I was a world away. So it has been so useful. It's been so amazing in my career. And I love it for all the reasons that you just outlined. I can't help but feel sad as well that it hasn't served and just isn't serving that function very much anymore. And I actually love seeing comments when I'm on TV, the good and the bad. I think, I I actually really appreciate that real-time feedback, and I love knowing that people are actually watching and listening, not just watching us with the volume off, but reacting to something that we say. But those comments have been decreasing, or they're just sort of all negative. I don't know what it's going to look like.
0: that's That's a really interesting point. I think engagement changed dramatically at some point last year. There's no doubt about that. So the engagement with your tweets, your content, that sort of thing, but then also the type of engagement, the sort of things that people were saying and it makes you much less inclined to share your content, engage with people. I think that's one. And then the other one is really interesting is like this whole thing with Substack, right? So Substack is obviously this fantastic blogging platform. They're like created some sort of community and some engagement features and they're supposedly going to launch some something that looks competitive to Twitter and Elon and team, they just, they suppress it. And you did over the weekend, supposedly you couldn't even go to a search box in Twitter. If you put Substack in, it, it would take you to something else. So they were suppressing tweets with links, that sort of thing. And I just think that sort of punitive nature is really interesting to me because one of the things before Jack left, he wanted to open source the whole thing, right? He wanted to make it more like a protocol rather than a company or a platform, which really speaks to probably, and again, I'm not, I don't want to go down the Web3 rabbit hole here. And, but like in some ways, I think Elon is actually helping to make the case that this is not a good business, especially when one person who owns it can alienate like, I guess, advertisers, which was the only way in which they were for the most part making any Money for a very long time.
1: I'm skeptical though that Substack is going to be able to replace Twitter. And there's been so many attempts to create a newer, better Twitter over the years that hasn't happened. Part of me just hopes that Twitter becomes great again, that maybe Elon Musk has his grand plan or he gets bored of it or something. It's such an interesting question that we'll have to revisit 10, 20 years from now. Why wasn't anyone able to actually replace I, it?
0: I think we'll be able to revisit it in a couple of years. And honestly, I think the only savior right now is. A new CEO, a new management team that's just going to be much less divisive and really figure out how to make Twitter great again. So, for whatever that's worth, that's probably not a great hat.
1: Is um, your account still suspended by that? Yeah. The-
0: Listen, and just a, a quick update for our listeners I was on April Fool's Day. I've been on since March 2011. I had 112,000 followers. And I really think, for the most part, I try to engage with viewers of our content, both on CNBC and the stuff we create here, and try to be as engaging as possible. I made an April Fool's joke. I put his picture on my avatar, and I left, obviously, my Twitter handle, at risk reversal, but I put his name on there, and I quote tweeted a tweet that he responded to a video of me on CNBC back in January, calling me a doofus. He literally said, this doofus believes everything the media writes about him. So, it's April Fool's. There were thousands and thousands of April Fool's jokes on Twitter going on the platform. So, I changed my name to Elon Musk, changed the picture, I quote tweeted the doofus thing, and I said, hey, just kidding, risk Reversal is not a doofus. Okay, like and that's what they permanently suspended my account for. When you have something like that happen to you, and again, really doesn't matter to me that much. I don't really care. I've been spending far less time on it. But you think about the impunity in which somebody like him or his team can act for something that we are the product. We are the thing that they're selling to advertisers. And if they want to go back to a bunch of eggs with 13 followers, just banging around and talking all this racist stuff and all this crazy stuff about sports stuff and this and that, whatever, fine, have at it. The platform's done, it's kaput, that's it. And when you think about the lack of substance that he actually adds with all the stupid memes and all the stuff that he does, you know what I mean, everything like that, they're not, it's not funny. Yesterday, just so you know, so we're recording this on Tuesday, on Monday, he changed his name so he left his at Elon Musk, his handle. He changed his name to Harry, B-O, accent over it, L-Z. Like that's what he did. He had that on Twitter for hours. The guy has 134 million followers. You know what I mean? So to me, I just kind of find it really interesting. That's my little rant. I don't really give a shit, but at the end of the well, day. It's a
1: shame because you are such a power user. And I think that anyone who's interested in finance, Twitter, FinTwit, anyone who watches CNBC, you are such a good person to follow and engage with that it's exactly like you said, he's hurting his product by doing that and for a weird reason.
0: Listen, I appreciate that. And I want to make one point is that I remember back in 2015, I think there was like growth scares in Asia and the markets were really volatile. And you must have been in Singapore then, does that sound right? And you were coming on Fast Money what are you guys, 12, 13 hours ahead of time or something like that? And you were doing hits and we're like, first of all, we're like, what's going on with Debo? I think we just nicknamed Debo right there, okay? And I remember following you like immediately and that's how we got to know each other. And I think there's a lot of people in a lot of those verticals that we just talked about. It's a shame. Listen, I'll just say one thing. If I was Jim Lanzone over at Yahoo and the team over there, they've been really quiet since it was bought by Apollo and from Verizon. I'd be moving heaven and earth. When you think about the traffic that Yahoo Sports and Finance and regular platform still has, the relevancy that I think a lot of people don't really even know, you know what I mean? From a di- digital traffic standpoint, they could create something like, w- w- like I'd be moving heaven and earth to do something there, you know what I mean? Google. For the for also Google Plus, bring it back, baby. I know, internal
1: question. I know, LinkedIn. I mean, anyone just do it, but for some yeah, reason, a lot of people, no one's a been
0: lot able to. People- A lot of people keep saying to me, hey, risk reversal media, are you guys, do you have a presence on LinkedIn? Because a lot of stuff is going on there. So we're going to spend some time this spring and summer digging into some of these other platforms too and try to create more engagement, better community. All right, Debo, I know you are on vacation this week. We really appreciate you coming to the mic. I hope you enjoy it. And we're going to get into Q1 earnings season next week. Netflix kicks it off in tech. That'll be fun. So I'm sure you and I will have a whole host of things to talk about. So thank My you My
1: favorite time of the year. I wouldn't miss that. Thanks for All having right.
0: me. Well, uh, I know it is. And you and I are going to be talking a lot, both on CNBC and here. So thanks so much, Deirdre Bosa. She is CNBC's Tech Check host. And stick around, people. When I come back, I have Ilir Sela. He is the CEO and co-founder of Slice and Jeff Richards of GGV Capital. Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by Jeff Richards. He is the managing partner over at GGV Capital. Our listeners know Jeff pretty well. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right, and we also have somebody that I know through you. I met first, I think, <laughs> uh, over the Twitter, and I obviously use his product and really enjoy it. Ilir Sella, the CEO and founder of Slice. Welcome to OK Computer Bud. Thank you so much for having me. All right, listen. So you and I <laughs> we met over the internet, then we met in the barber's chair, (laughs) Then we spent a really fun night at Madison Square Garden watching the Rangers a few weeks ago. We happened to meet some Ranger greats, Marc Messier, Stéphane Matteau, Mike Richter. That was pretty cool, right? So it was interesting. I got to know you a little bit as a diehard New York sports fan. Where did that come from? Because you grew up here as a kid, and you got into all these sports, and you also had a little love for pizza, and I'd love to hear about that too.
2: Yeah, look, I immigrated to New York when I was 10 years old. Fast forward a couple of years to 1994, which was the magic summer in New York City for sports. The Yankees were just, you know, Derek Jeter's rookie year, both the Knicks and the Rangers in the finals. And so, as you can imagine, like what a way to get introduced to sports and just competitively, I have a twin brother and we have no choice but to be like super competitive with each other. So I
0: think that that probably has something to do with it. That is a magical summer. And I got to tell you, MSG, they just did this kind of billion-dollar renovation, and the pizza in there is absolute crap. <laughs> Jeff, that must make you feel a bit, a bit jealous of your main man here. And I just got to tell you, I told Guy Adami I was jumping on with you right now, and he wanted to see how your game was. You know, is that you've had some kind of nicks and scrapes of late, you know, maybe that bum knee or so. He wants to make sure that you're getting out there and working on your J a little bit.
3: Just coming off my second knee surgery, but uh, as we're fond of saying here in the Bay Area, early April is when the rest of the country realizes the Warriors are actually legit title contenders again. Here we go. It's an exciting time to be a basketball fan here in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, I don't think the Knicks have had the same kind of run that we have the last 10 years, but... Maybe your time will come someday.
0: That's a matter of fact, but you know what's funny? Like, you know, you guys have had this diaspora from Silicon Valley and I loved it how satisfied you guys all were, all the VCs, all the founders out there when, you know, Steph and crew started going on that run. You guys were just taking as much credit for it as possible. (laughs) You know, and it was the, the Oracle, the house that the Oracle built there. You know what I mean? But whatever. Okay. All right, let's get to pizza. Okay. You come from a long line of pizza Entrepreneurs in a way. And I really want to hear about like how you came about with this idea for slice as somebody who grew up in the 80s in America. Going down to the local pizza shop was kind of a a rite of passage. You know, they always had a couple video games in there, maybe something from the Miss Pac-Man family or something. I know Jeff was a big frogger guy. For you, how did you get into this business? I'd love to get to the path of where you are today because it sounds like this business is doing something very different than maybe what a lot of US consumers. Think about as it relates to the delivery business, you're kind of serving a different market.
2: I um, come from a family of pizzeria entrepreneurs, small business owners. As you know, as you said, pizza is actually the cornerstone of so many neighborhoods around the country. Every neighborhood in the country has a pizza shop that every consumer can depend on to be there in moments of celebration. Moments of defeat, maybe, you know, the Warriors lost the game or something like that. I think the the beauty of these businesses is their independence and authenticity. You know, they're creating different products, they're creating different types of pizzas. We can have those, you know, age-old debates about what's the better pizza, is it the Chicago deep dish to New York style? And that's just like awesome. It's American culture. Now that's the pro. The downside or the challenge that they're facing is that they're independent. They're alone. They're alone in everything that they do. And they're inheriting all these business problems, including my own immediate family members. Just a personal story, my uncle, immediate uncle, had a stroke inside our family pizza shop in 2004 because of the stresses that they deal with. You know, they're makers at the core, but they're having to inherit all these business problems and challenges. And so what makes them special is also their inextricable, it's like their most important challenge. And for Slice, the idea was to unite these independent operators with a platform that brings them technology, marketing insights, and the economies of scale that larger chains benefit from. Domino's franchisee doesn't have to worry about all the business challenges that an independent shop has to worry about. Now, that gap is ultimately what's going to determine whether America will be full of Domino's locations and pizza will just be homogenous or whether we can keep our communities colorful and authentic and diverse. And in order to do that, I think a platform that solves some of those really important challenges is so important.
0: Yeah, I've seen you tweet this, it's kind of a funny saying, this little thing with big pizza, right? I think you're talking about these, the, you know, the big national chains that advertise all weekend long on unsporting events and that sort of thing. And they made these big pushes, right, into these franchise models, but then also kind of laying out the sorts of technology that gives them the ability to connect with consumers and make it easier for them to order. At what point did you kind of figure out, given the, the background that you had in in the space, it could have been anything, it could have been burgers, it could have been chicken, whatever it was, that this was something that you could really compete with by offering a layer of technology that would put them on par with some of these big national chains.
2: I spent about a year studying the overall pizza industry beyond my own family's shops. Learned that, I'll give you a couple of data points. The pizza industry in the US, about 78,000 locations, collectively manage about $48 billion in revenue, And 75% of those locations are small businesses. So that was the first lesson. The second lesson was that the consumer was fast moving to digital. So in 2010, when I founded the company as a bootstrap business, I knew for a fact that at some point, all of the volume was going to be digital. I didn't know if it was going to be in two years or 10 years, but I knew that that was the tailwind. That's where the consumer wanted to go. And so when you combine those two things, uh, it was pretty obvious that a... Product that allows a consumer to order online or through a mobile app for the majority of independents or the majority of the pizza industry in the US. The product market fit was almost immediate. I first met Alir in 2018.
3: Famously, we met at the Pizza Expo in Las Vegas, which I highly recommend if you haven't been. It combines many elements that we all love gambling, <laughs> your favorite nightclubs, and pizza. But the thing that struck us as a firm was you know, if you wind back the clock, Alir mentioned so many things in our lives today kicked off in that 08, 010 timeframe, right? The iPhone launches in 08, App Store launches in 09, 010. And all these things that we sort of take for granted today, whatever you do through that phone. When we first met Alir, Domino's Pizza, if you wind back the clock to 2010, Domino's Pizza was around a, about a, a $500 million market cap company. Today, it's $12 billion they've ridden the digital wave, right? The Domino's store that we all knew and grew up around where they actually took a call, made the pizza, you went and picked it up or they delivered it. Today, that's all centralized, it's all digital. Their business in the last decade has gone from no digital to today, I think at Lear, it's 75, 80% yes. digital. Mm-hmm. And we said, gosh, what yeah. if what if an entrepreneur like Alir, who at the time I met him was running about a, they were doing, you're doing about 50 million a GMV?" Yeah, exactly. Uh, 5 million of revenue, 50 yeah. million a GMB. What if he could take the entire independent pizza industry and do for it what Domino's has done for its franchisees? The average franchisee at Domino's in that decade went from doing 450,000 a year in sales to now they do 1.3 million per store. What if Alir could help these local merchants running small businesses, family-run businesses do the same, convert to digital, higher margin, get consumers to order ahead, build loyalty programs? What an awesome business that would be. The challenge as we dug in, and Alir can tell you more about this, most of the merchants that he serves at that point in time had no technology, no computer, no internet connection, no nothing in the shop. And so he had to find a way to bridge the gap between, I wanna make it really easy for people to order pizza over the web and and mobile, but where's that order gonna go? And so Lear, I'll let you take it from there. How did you bridge the gap and how are you still bridging the gap today? Because I think one of the things that I always tell folks about the SMB tech business, companies that provide technology to small business, it's way harder than selling to large enterprises because you're typically selling to an end customer that has very, very, very little capability to even use the technology you want to provide them with. Even if it makes them, their business 10 times better, they just don't have the capability to do it. And so he's been bridging that gap now for over a decade, still doing it today, but to his point, that tide, that shift to digital is inevitable and we're riding it. So let us jump in a little bit with how you guys covered that.
2: I heard the saying at one point, you know, small business owners are creators, whose house is consistently on fire and, you know, try and go and selling something to that person to completely change their entire business. It's a very difficult proposition. So to bridge the gap, I'll be honest, for the first three or four years as a bootstrap company, the consumer would place an order online. It would come to my telephone and then I would call the pizza shop (laughs) because the pizza shop knew how to take orders by phone. And once they were tired of hearing from me, I would say, hey, we have this product that can eliminate my phone calls. And that product can just print all of the orders that we're you know, generating for you. Uh, we did the same thing with a fax machine. So then we had fax machines inside shops. It would print the order until there were too many orders flowing. And then we provided them with what we call a slice OS. And so you just have to do these like really messy jobs in order to prove value to the merchant. And then eventually they'll be more open and receptive to the technology that I think is just so critical for
0: them for them to succeed. It was a good five yep. or six years. <laughs> but but to Jeff's point, and and I know that he's bet on dozens if not hundreds of companies that have benefited from that very wave that he talked about in the wake of that kind of 08, 09, the convergence of mobile and broadband and social, just e-commerce really finding its way. You deal with what, like 15,000 local merchants right now. I mean, so you must have built a stack of tech You've been iterating on it. I'm sure that your ability to get leverage and moving into different geographics, dense cities like where I live in New York is a very different proposition than delivering something in a more rural environment. Talk to us a little bit about the tech that you built. And now, obviously, every small business has access to broadband. They have access to you know hardware in their stores, and they're probably using it across all different parts of their business. This is probably one of the easier things they do, and they probably have great motivation to really. Figure out how to use it.
2: Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, the products that we focused on first were to build best in class consumer products. So I would argue our mobile app for the consumer is the best product to order from a local pizza shop. It is fairly priced, it is a representation of what the shop really wants the consumer to pay for their product. It just works incredibly well. It's got all these modifiers. We also built a point of sale product for the merchants we call Slice Register. So now you're combining the consumer facing product with the merchant facing product in order to have a very streamlined end-to-end experience. And then finally, we're now starting to think about insights. So how do you take all this data and then provide it to the merchant so that they can be smarter about their business in advance of the volume? Because today they're reacting to the volume. So you'll order at 5 p.m. on a Friday, they'll start working on their order after you place it. Domino's knows you're gonna order at 5 p.m. By the time you place that order, the pizza is most likely in the oven, and that's how they deliver very quickly, and that's how they keep the consumer you know, incredibly happy. So those have been sort of the areas of focus for the company, and certainly the products have come a long way from the days of me calling in orders in 2011.
3: You think about the businesses that have been super successful serving small businesses, companies like Shopify, Square, now Slice. There's a whole bunch of, of private companies that are up and coming in this category. They take a long time to build. Bill.com was a private company, I think, for 15 or 16 years before it went public. Today, it's a $10 billion public company handling billing, payment, and invoicing for SMBs these categories take a long time to build out. And you have to play the long game if you want to be a founder in this space. And so when I met Allier, for example, in 2018, he'd already been in business for eight years. How many founders in Silicon Valley have the mentality of, I'm going to go build for eight years before I raise any real venture capital to build this company? There just aren't that many people that are willing to play the long game. But if you do, in SMB, You can build, as we've now seen with those other companies I mentioned, you can build a very large company that has a very distinct moat because it's hard for others to come in and compete. For somebody to come in and compete with Slice today, to build that back office hamster wheel of handling customers that don't use technology, to build the brand recognition, to build the loyalty, to build all the efficiency that he's built into the current version of the product today, which is 13 years in the making – These are not slow processes. This is entrepreneurialism how it should be.
0: Jeff, for every investment in a company like Slice and an entrepreneur like Elyr, you've turned down dozens, maybe much more. What was it about what he had spent the last eight years building and about the vision? Because again, some of these companies are meant to serve consumers. Some are meant to serve the retailer. This one looks like it had a focus on both. And it also had basically a common competitor in a way, which was much bigger incumbent. So I'm just curious like what you found so unique about what he had built and his vision for it.
3: Well, you're spot on, Dan. In fact, one of the challenges in the SMB tech space is you end up with a business that is a mixture of software, marketplace, and fintech, and it's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. If you want to handle, become the operating system for the merchant, you've got to do multiple pieces of the puzzle. And one of the challenges in the venture capital business, a lot of VCs look at a business and say, there's no way you can pull all that off. That's too complex or the margin structure is not right or whatever. And so Lyric could tell you about all the folks that passed on investing in Slice along the way. I'll never forget uh, several investors calling me and saying, gosh, we just don't like the delivery business. And I was like, well, you're going to love Slice then because we don't do delivery. (laughs) But they weren't getting their head around the idea that this was a a digital vehicle to help these companies modernize. I'd say the biggest things that struck us were one, just how big the industry is. Two, how non-cyclical it is. People eat pizza in good times. People eat pizza in bad times right whether the baseball team wins or loses on saturday everybody goes to pizza afterwards and then the third thing was just the penetration rate if you looked at dominos and saw what they had done with digital and then looked at the non big pizza part of the industry which is over half so all these 15,000 merchants that alier works with they are still for the most part only 5 10 15% digital so dominos today is up at 80 85% the rest of the industry is at 10, 15%. And we said, gosh, what if Alir could help those merchants modernize? You know, if they got to 90%, if they eventually got to 100%, and he captured the majority of that, this would be a great business. And then the most important one is you've met Alir, you've hung out in person. He is authentic. This isn't some business school case study where he was like, you know what, I, I, I think this is a business that needs to happen. He's third generation pizza. I've been to his home in Macedonia where he grew up. He has marinara sauce coming out of his vein. <laughs> and so he's authentic. He's unique. He connects with the merchants. He connects with the families. They feel that and they want to work with him because of it. The flip side of when you back somebody like that is they generally need to go find other talented people around them to help fill in the gaps about how you scale and build a big company. And that's one thing I'd encourage you to ask Lear about if you have a chance. He's built an exceptional team of people around him. We brought in Dave O'Neill as president about a year and a half ago. And the business is you know i've tweeted this and he's talked about it publicly today it's north of 100 million of annual revenue and it's profitable they were ahead of the curve when the rest of the venture capital industry was trying to convince founders to get lean and get mean given the change that had happened in the public market this team was way ahead of that curve and so today you know we like to say in the in the board meetings the uh, where it says runway cash runway it says na not relevant doesn't matter we're good well-
0: well, what was that like for you building a company on your own? I'm sure trial and error, right? And you've used the term already here, bootstrapping things, but then all of a sudden you meet a guy like Jeff Richards and you know his success in helping companies get to where they want to go and really scale. What was it like to have access to someone like him and the resources GGV has? And and again, I, I, our friend, Adam Bain, I know he's been involved and he's a bit of a genius. I think he's got slightly better l- little baby hook than you, Jeff. Um, <laughs> Better <laughs> looking, Take I know care. that. But, but what, what was that like? All of a sudden, just kind of stepping into this kind of Silicon Valley VC backed world after building a company for years. For me personally,
2: the most important thing is learning, and then in order to learn, you've got to be very open minded to different points of feedback, and also leaning in on experience. Jeff is a two time founder himself. Some of the feedback that he shares with me isn't just about the companies he backs, but also his own personal experience running two different companies. And I would say for me. One of the benefits was that in the early days, the reason I raised capital wasn't for the money. We were profitable, bootstrapped. It was totally fine. But it was really more about surrounding myself with people like Jeff and others who who joined and really helped not only provide direct feedback, but opened up their network to me in order for us to build out a team. And that's been very important, uh, really important to, to build a team that is probably a step or two
0: ahead of where the company is. Talk to me about the value proposition for the consumer, because it really is creating more of it. And again, I use slice more of a direct relationship with a local business rather than feeling like you are kind of in just this app centric world. And who knows, there's tons of fees associated with all the other ones and everything like that. It just feels like you're basically ordering from the business. And not only are you getting a better deal, but the merchant is probably getting more of that revenue that you've just ordered that product from.
2: Yeah. For the consumer, the value prop is is spot on, relatively simple. Uh, consumers have been used to phoning in, calling in orders from for the shops. That is actually a worse experience for the consumer. It's a bad experience for the merchant. Slice mobile ordering allows you to order from your favorite local shop directly for both pickup and delivery. And 85% of the time, the delivery is performed by the shop, by the merchant. And so you get a direct experience, you get pricing that matches the pricing of the merchant. It's what software was meant to solve for, which was make an inefficient process a lot more efficient for both the consumer and the merchant. It's as simple as that. It's not about introducing delivery to a cohort of customers that never delivered. It's not about introducing a channel that is simply about incremental new consumers to the merchant. Slice is just replacing old inefficient channels with new mobile ordering experiences that the consumer uh, really wants and asks for, yeah. Uber. I mean, there were
3: taxis running around New York and San Francisco and LA prior to Uber, but what did they do? They made it super easy to order, to manage that process. Same thing with DoorDash. Food delivery has been around forever. They made it really easy to track and manage. And I think what Alir is doing is bringing a ton of innovation, not only to make it easier for the consumer. How do we teach a consumer to order ahead? Right on the Super Bowl, the thing that drives pizza merchants crazy is everybody calls at twelve o'clock and says, "I'd like six large pizzas delivered at 1.30. How do we train that consumer to order the day before? Order at nine a.m. We all know Halloween. Uh, what are the other big holidays? Jump in here, Alir. Help me out. There's a bunch of big holidays fri- where we Good know. Good Friday, yeah.
2: Good Friday.
3: <laughs> we know that those are big holidays. How do we adjust that order behavior? But also, you know, think about subtle things. It increases AOV for the merchant, right? When you call Lou's Pizza and say, Lou's Pizza, this is Lou, and it's a Friday night, Lou's stressed. He's trying to manage a business. He's trying to make sure his kids showed up for work. He's got people in the shop. He's got people he's trying to serve who are delivery drivers. And so how do we make that experience better for the consumer? Instead of having to call, they pick out their pizza, they pick out their salad, they add in a soda, they add in dessert. Yeah you're increasing aov for the merchant you're increasing the profitability of their business for them which is you know theoretically over time back to alier's point about the transition here being inevitable this should happen i would argue the only reason that our 15000 merchants and by the way when we get all 15000 merchants processing 100% of their volume on slice we will be bigger than domino's pizza so let's just let's just point <laughs> that out but you know they would love to have 100% of their volume on slice today so you ask the question why don't they A lot of it has to do with all that inertia we talked about earlier. It's hard as a small business owner to use technology, right? I don't have a chief technology officer. I don't have some sort of internal IT program to develop and buy the latest software and hardware. And so being patient working with them, doing the things that make a difference for them over time, and then launching additive products that add value to them as a merchant. One thing that Slice has been doing recently is delivering goods. So pizza boxes to merchants. How do I help them get the same kind of group buying benefit that they would get as a Domino's franchisee, but not have to deliver crappy, you know, big pizza, Mm -hmm. still deliver that authentic local pizza that they want to deliver, but give them all the technology
0: supply chain advantages that those bigger merchants have. We mentioned some of these big delivery companies and, and I'm looking at like a DoorDash and they're going to expect it to do $8 billion in revenue this year, but lose over $800 million in revenue. And so this is a company that has gross margins just below 50%, maybe 46 or so percent. And they're not expected to be profitable on a gap basis for another couple years. And when you think about this company in market cap terms, the public markets are treating it as like, okay, it's down a lot from its post IPO highs, but it still has a $24 billion market cap, right? And so I think one of the big kind of pillars of the bear case is that the unit economics don't work for these companies, right? And we've seen that. It's also played out, Jeff, as you mentioned in Uber, and Uber's made this big move into eats. There was an interesting article in the New York Times on April 9th, okay? It was called $388 in sushi just a $20 tip, the brutal math of Uber Eats and DoorDash. And I was reading this article and it just highlighted like a couple of the points that I've heard some of my friends who've been short these things from the get go, right? Mm-hmm. Right out of the gate. You know what I mean? And so you're already a company that when I just heard you had. Five million dollars in revenue and fifty million of gross merchandise value. Now you have a hundred million dollars in revenue. I can only think about what the GMV is here. So talk to me a little bit about what you're competing with because you're basically giving these small medium-sized businesses, the tools where they can make decisions about who they employ, how they employ them, how they pay them, and all the other things that go. These are the things that we've heard from drivers and delivery drivers, you know, in these models for years that are just really unhappy with it. And I don't know why they're still doing it, to be honest with you. I think the world of companies like Doordash
2: and Uber Eats, these are very complicated problems. They've reached scale. These companies are doing some things really, really well. But in terms of the human economics, it's challenging because My bigger question is, are some of these other categories that are synonymous with now delivery, whether it's McDonald's or Chipotle, are these categories really meant to be delivered? Because pizza is very, very different. The margins of a pizza shop have assumed delivery in the pricing, right? When a pizzeria sets a price of a large cheese pizza at $17, delivery is assumed in that price because pizza has been delivered for decades. Now, when sushi is priced, uh, delivery traditionally has never been assumed in that retail price. And now it's gotta be incremental to it. And so when you start trying to deliver things that have traditionally not been priced for delivery, you starting introducing that type of model. The question is one of like consumer frequency and ability to then stomach some of those fees. And that's where the unit economics, I think start breaking down. I don't know if a consumer wants to pay $30 for two cheeseburgers at McDonald's, but I mean, there's no other option because you have now three parties that need to be paid. You've got DoorDash that has to get paid. You have the driver that has to get paid. You have McDonald's that has to get paid and you have one person paying, the consumer. Too many mouths to feed, I guess, is a good way to put it. (laughs) It's such an interesting question, Dan,
3: because if you look at the growth, I mean, first of all, the CEOs of these companies are phenomenal. Tony's one of the best founding CEOs I've ever met. Dara obviously at Uber was brought in to, to run that business. Demand is not the problem, right? I mean Doordash in 2022 did 6.6 billion in revenue up from 900 million in 2019. So clearly there is consumer demand. But as you point out, if I take the variable components that are involved here, I've got the price of the product that has to be delivered, which in some cases they mark up, I've got the labor cost. I've got to pay the driver. And then there's the the tip portion, which I read the same article you did. I think one of the challenges you have is when I go to a great restaurant and my meal is $300, it's a phenomenal, you know, once a quarter type meal and it's $300, a $60 tip on top of that feels appropriate because I had a great experience. It was a special night. It meant a lot. We celebrated a graduation or a birthday or whatever. I don't know that consumers feel like they get the same experience when food comes to their door. And so I don't think they mentally think, oh gosh, that's worth 20% of the order value just to have somebody drop it off in my door. Unfortunately, the folks who get shortchanged in that exercise are the drivers because at the end of the day, there's some level that a consumer is willing to pay to have that food delivered. The operator, whether it's Instacart or DoorDash, can't just keep increasing that exponentially. During COVID, we had a unique environment where you couldn't go out so guess what that price elasticity for the consumer who may have said gosh i'm not willing to pay more than 50 dollars to have food delivered it went to 80 because they couldn't do anything else well now i think with inflation and the economy and everything else that's happening you're seeing that come back down so it'll be interesting to see how they do one of the things that's interesting about a business is he empowers the merchant to do pickup so i can do pickup at the restaurant if i don't want to pay a delivery fee they can set their own pricing for delivery and keep the margin that is in some cases being taken by those third party delivery sites if they want to create their own delivery service which by the way as Lear mentioned family owned pizzerias have been doing for decades right cousin sal does you know the morning delivery uh, aunt jenny does the evening deliveries it's been a big part of the business model forever and it's just baked into it but at the end of the day uh, you know slice is a technology company so we're a very high gross margin technology business.
2: The jury is out as to whether you can make a three-sided marketplace work economically. So I think one of those two sides or three sides has to be vertically integrated. And it's either going to be autonomous delivery, TBD on when and if that happens, or you have to own the merchandise. Meaning if you're DoorDash, you have to own the restaurant or the products that you're delivering which is, you know, the investments that they've made in something called DashMart. So you've got to take away one of those two parties in order for the economics to work. So long that there's three parties involved. TBD on whether you can actually make the unit
0: economics work. Jeff just mentioned inflation. We know that there's been fears about a recession. From where you sit and you think about the dashboard that you have when you're monitoring different regions, I'm just curious, like, what sort of sense do you have for the health of, of small business right now? And I know it's probably hard to extrapolate that a little bit from where you sit, but it seems like we have inflation expectations going back up a little bit after coming in hard. We're seeing consumer spending data kind of soften just a little bit here. You know, this is kind of over the last few months or so, we're seeing unemployment ticked up a little bit off of 50 year lows. Do you have a sense for what's going on out there, just at least from the yeah. data sets that you see?
2: On the consumer side, pizza is a staple. So this is just incredibly consistent demand coming through. And I would argue that that demand is kind of inching up a little bit as consumers spend more nights out inside and they order pizza for their family and friends and so on and so forth. From an overall Economic sort of standpoint, we're in the midst of a small business renaissance. 4,800 new pizza shops opened up, independent pizza shops opened up in 22, an all time record. And as careers become less certain for people and unemployment, or let's call it layoffs, are happening more and more frequently, the Person wants to take their uh, sort of destiny in their own hands. They want to control their own destiny. They want to lean into opening up their own small business. And the barriers to entry for small businesses have come down completely because of technology companies. And so when you combine those things, I think the 2020s are going to be just magical for SMBs. I'm, I'm a huge fan. You know, we had a record number of small business applications in the
3: U.S. in 21 and 22, 10 million 10 million people filed paperwork, filed paperwork to start a new business, a new small business in America. And to Lear's point, it's never been easier to build a website to sell products, never been easier to build a digital front end like Slice provides. Whatever piece of your business, whether it's accounting, email marketing, social media marketing, all of the, the tech stacks behind that have now been built. The payment rails are there with Square and Stripe and others. Combine that with the fact that people have lost a little bit of the religion around they have to live in a giant metro region, we could see a real strong small business renaissance in the US over the next few years. And those 10 million people that filed to start new businesses, and we'll probably see a similar number this year, all going to be buying technology from Slice and Square and Mm -hmm. Stripe and Ring central I mean you name it we, we're super bullish as you know on the S&P tech sector
0: so so Hillary, without naming names here are there other verticals that look really ripe for you to do exactly what you've done with pizza and other things and again it sounds like you're already doing some delivery to the actual merchants but do you see a lot of opportunities similar to what you saw let's say it back in 2010 for local pizza shops
2: the opportunity for slices to double down on pizza because while we're Partners today with now 19,000 locations, there's still tens of thousands of locations that are not yet partners. And there's geographies where we're just not really that relevant yet. We, we talk a little bit about international expansion. I tell our team, a uh, great international geography is Washington State. Let's go there. Because it's just as a greenfield as Canada or some international market. From an overall sort of vertical expansion standpoint, I would hide the name and I would just look at verticals that are incredibly fragmented. Predominantly made up of independent operators, mostly offline and typically owner operated. When I look at any category that fits those criteria, I get really excited about this model, which I call a reverse franchise model, where you can... Bring those economies of scale and services to uh,
0: to that long tail. All right, just give us a sense. I mean, how much pizza are you eating in a week? Because if, you, <laughs> if you've if you've onboarded all of you know thousands yourself probably of these merchants, you got to go in there and do your best Portnoy or whatever, like and acting like you're probably given average like four and a half stars out of five on every uh, every slice that you try. But uh, like, well, and you're a really fit guy too. You know, we spent some time together here. So, what what what's your pizza diet like?
2: So two to two to three orders a week, two to three pizzas a week. Wow. But I, I'm actually going to go on some like tour to evangelize how healthy local pizza is relative to chains. It's actually a very solid meal made of like great ingredients. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, the sauce is crushed tomatoes. The cheese is pure. You don't have to sell me. I
0: I, I probably had a thousand pizzas in my life here. I I got you, man. You know, I'm sold. Jeff, what's your, what's your favorite sort of pizza? Because everyone knows that San Francisco has got shit pizza for the most part.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We are, I'll tell you, we are a power slice power user family. We probably order once a week, our average bill. And I know all the metrics on slice. Our average bill is about three times the average because we're always ordering for kids and, it is others. We found um we found a couple of great local spots here. We live in the East Bay in Pleasanton. And, you know, to Alyar's point, it's funny, I've gotten to know the owners. There's one owner of a local restaurant and they didn't have meatballs. My son likes to get meatballs when we order pizza. And I, I called one time and said, is there any chance you guys could order meatballs to the add, add meatballs to the menu? The next time we ordered, he he threw in six meatballs and wrote, these are for your son. So, you know, that's, you're not going to get that from Domino's. You're not going to get that from Papa
0: John's. It's part of what I love about, about the business. No doubt. I mean, listen, you know, I, I think I told you this earlier. I mean, like uh, one of the first places I ever ate in New York City, it was, uh, Jeff, you like this. I was here with my dad and my brother. My, I have a twin also earlier. And um, we were here for the Big East tournament and it was probably like, 1987 or something and we went to John's Pizza on bleaker and oh. I just thought it was like like 100% the best slice of pizza I had ever and by the way they don't sell slices as you know um the best pizza I'd ever had in my life and I've been taking my kids there I, I still go you know you know almost 40 years later and I know the guys in there the shop is like almost exactly the same there's usually lines around the corner to get in there and I also got to give a shout out to Ruby Rosa because that's one of my all-time faves you can tell I'm a real thin sort of brick oven guy here
2: I mean you you just named two of the best in the
0: world
3: we don't, just to be clear, we don't have anything that good out here.
0: <laughs> I know. Trust me. Cause when I go out there, it's usually a late night sort of uh, you know, like a drunk slice for me. I'm um, not, th- not saying that that happens too frequently. Yeah. So, all right, well, listen, man, I, I really, this was a great conversation. You and I have talked to Jeff about Hilarious Slice for a couple of years. I'm so glad I got to meet you and hear about your business and have our listeners have the opportunity to hear about it. You are a great entrepreneur. I can't wait to see what happens with Slice. And I kind of feel, that Washington State, while it sounds really interesting, you're going to be moving on to some other geographies and maybe some other verticals too. So, can't wait to see what happens with Slice. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.